Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I'm joined for a mailbag Q&A podcast episode with you guys with my good AP friends, Joe748 and SD1. How's it going, Joe748? You got deja vu again. We're here again. <laughs> How's it going, SD1? Still a pleasure to be with you guys. Awesome. We got a good group of questions. We got some counting questions, some uh, tax and law stuff, and some other AP stuff. We'll see what we can get to and what we don't get to we can do next time. Hey, we got busy, busy lives, but happy to be here answering some questions for you all. Starting with, can counting aces and modifying bets while counting cards be profitable if you keep track of each separately? So I think the question is like counting high-low or something like that, and then also counting the aces separately. Can that be profitable? An ace side count? Yes. It's, it's, I mean, the most valuable card in the entire deck is an ace. So that is 100% profitable. Now, can you do it? And can you do it with perfection? That's a big deal. I think the other thing that's really important is that it's a count that is in a side count counting system, like high up two. With high low, you're not going to get as much value out of it as something that is designed for an ace side count. So if people want to find that out, we have a list of different counting strategies on Blackjack Apprenticeship that show you the value and, you know, what the different counts are and, and how much it's going to add to your, you know, not, not exactly EV, but your edge. And if you want to do that, you can do it. But like SD1 said, it's a lot of work. The people that I know that have done this, they say they mentally fatigue way faster and they can't play as fast. So whether it's worth doing, I don't recommend it unless you're going to only focus on double deck games and you would rather make more per hand at the expense of probably some rounds per hour or even like longevity of session. Yeah, that would make sense on the double deck game because you do have that extra time, especially if it's pitch or it's way slower. I was playing a side count game for it had aces in it. Ace was part of the count and it was a minus 11 for every ace you saw. So that was a just Definitely more draining and fatiguing trying to get used to that. Yeah, I did a side bet game. The aces were minus something. It was something like that. That most of the value was the aces. And and it was, man, the jumps in the in the running count were pretty, pretty dramatic. It was a little bit harder to get it down than I was expecting, to be honest. I think if you train hard enough and you can play fast enough with high low, rounds per hour is is king. Yeah, I tend to agree. Okay. The next question, this is from the BJ YouTube. I asked in the community tab if people had questions. So that's where some of these are coming from. He says, or she says, I've always read that when counting cards to include red sevens, because it helps odds a tiny bit. Is this true? Yes, 52 cards will end up plus two counted perfect. So do you guys add red sevens when you count? I don't. No. There, there's a count called the Red Seven. So I don't. So this person probably read the book that teaches the Red Seven. So it's the same as the last time. You got like, don't make up a count or hear something and start doing it. You got to research the exact count and not just the count, but then does that count change your playing deviations? Does it change your betting spread? All of that stuff. And so if, if you're listening to this, there's more to it than just how do I count and I'm going to go to a casino and play. You got to know 
how exactly to bet off that count and what the deviations are for that count. You need to be able to do it all perfectly. So do your research. To be honest, a lot of this stuff is there at Blackjack Apprenticeship or elsewhere, but you got to do the research. Moving on. What if an AP loses count in a round, but still has the previous count, like what the count was before that round in his mind? I'm sure I've had this happen. So what would you do in that situation? If it's a six-deck game, then I would continue with that previous round count, but I wouldn't do this on a double-deck game or something like that, or a single-deck game. God, no, on a single-deck game, definitely not. But um, yeah, if it's a six-deck game, then you, I would just treat that hand as like, I just ignore what happened and add it, add that to the end. Like that. I just added more penetration, like, you know, eight more cards or something to the back. That's what I would do also. I think the one caveat is like, if you have, you know, under a few hundred hours, maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe it's time to just get up, but the more hours and the more time you have in the more comfortable you are, I think that that's what you should probably do. That's what I would do. I think there's a scenario that that sometimes happens that's in between there. Like the cards come out, you update the rank count, and you're like, wait, is that right? And you do know, hey, the, the round started with a running 12. If you have time, you can re-update your running count. I do that all the time where I'm just like, wait, I want to make sure I didn't double count the dealer's card or something like that. And, and so you can re-update, but, but that's where it is very, very important to be very, very fast at counting because I can recount the table really quickly. But if this happens, what I've always suggested someone do is to just be on the conservative side. <laughs> when in doubt, be on the conservative side. You know, if you're saying, hey, it's a true four, or it was a true four, it's still got to be a true four, I would bet it a little more conservatively for the rest of that shoe. If I know, well, I don't know if it's still a true four, but I do know it's still positive, then bet it like it's a true two or something like that. So you're not missing out on the EV, but you're also not overbaying your bankroll for an entire shoe if if you're actually wrong. But I think you have, make a really good point, SD1. Uh, you want to get to a point where this isn't happening. So don't take from us like, oh, great. If I'm dropping the count constantly, just whatever it was last time I knew. Like That's a quick way to have no edge. If it happens that rare, like once every 20 hours, just bet on the conservative side would be my advice. And what do you guys do when, let's say they've already dealt several rounds, what's the max amount of cards in the discard tray? Would you start the shoe late, getting in late? Oh, oh. Yeah, so so what you're saying is, let's say you show up at the table and there's already half a deck in the discard tray. The way to think about this, for those who don't know, is that those cards are the exact same thing as cards behind the cut card. Because cards behind the cut card are cards you are never going to play and you're never going to see them. Well, if you show up half a deck in, that's half a deck you're never going to play or see. So the question I ask myself is, well, what does that do to the overall deck penetration of the game? If it's a table that cuts a deck and a half off and I've missed half a deck, then that means they're cutting off two decks. If they're cutting off two decks, like, would I play that game? I guess I would say if I've got nothing else I can do for the next 20 minutes and I'm back counting it and it skyrockets, I would play it conservatively because I know it's kind of a trash game, but it's some EV. But if it's like, oh yeah, they're cutting off, let's say they you only miss the first quarter deck and it's a casino that cuts off a deck and a quarter. Well, would I play a casino that cuts off a deck and a half? Yeah, absolutely. 
but I'm going to treat it like a game that cuts off a deck and a half. It's a little hard to visualize if you're listening to this on a podcast, but just take six decks of cards and go through what I just said, and you'll you'll get it very quickly. That's the way I, I think about it. I don't know if you guys have any other different way of thinking about it. No, I think that's the right way to look at it. But do you guys make a practice of doing something like that? Early in my career, all the time, because it was like blackjack. Gotta gotta play blackjack. <laughs> you know, like I thought I made money by playing blackjack. Now I understand I make the most money by playing quality blackjack games, positive rounds per hour. And so I'm less interested in doing it. I'd say probably nowadays my cutoff might be that I missed a quarter deck, which maybe is two or three rounds of blackjack that I missed more than that. And it's not the quality of game I want to play. It's so annoying when like you're, you're at a table and you go to the, try to fit in a bathroom trip real quick in between shuffles or something, you go back and they're already started playing. It's like, Oh, like, so that's the only time it happens. Like it's happened to me multiple times where I, I leave to try to like run an errand in between shoes and they start right away. But I know there has been people have asked that question before in the past quite a few times. Awesome. This next question here, I don't think I have an answer for, but I'm interested to see if you guys do. Uh, what they're saying is, I'm here in Columbia. Can you do a segment on scavenger plays and what plays are slam dunk for EV, such as 12 versus dealer nine, and they are surrendering 15 versus eight, etc. Lots of big errors appears people are making down here, but I don't know how to calculate the edge. I think what he's asking and i don't understand the specific scenarios necessarily but almost like taking insurance on somebody else's hand kind of a scenario those kind of things doubling for them when they don't want to double it right and in some countries you can play behind somebody too so i generally stay away from things like that playing on some i you know my own play is is enough to worry about and my own act, unless it fits in, like on occasion, but to constantly be doing those kind of like scavenger plays on a blackjack game, I, I just personally think that I wouldn't be doing it. And calculate the EV on it. I mean, that's that's a nightmare. You'd have to take every individual scenario. Yeah, I was going to say Wizard of Odds. You could you can calculate. You know, let's say it is a double down. Let's say it's eleven versus a six, and the person wants to just hit. Not that you could do it at the table, but at home from Wizard of Odds, you could enter that in and, and it'll show you what's the EV of hitting versus doubling. And of course, it's going to be huge for an 11 against a six. I think there are obvious ones that might be worth it, but whether you want to do that, maybe it depends. It, you got to trust they're actually going to give you the money if the hand hits. You need to worry about if, how the casino is going to look at it. And how worth it is. I feel like there was a story. I can even remember which BJ member it was, but I, I feel like there was a story of someone that that tried to do this and then it like went haywire at the table. And it was like, oh no. Like maybe the person didn't want to pay them out when they tried to provide the money for a double down. Like the person just wanted to give them their initial bet back, not the extra payout. Something like that. And I was like, yeah, you risk that as well. But if they want to calculate on a hand-by-hand basis. You do that on Wizard of Odds, their blackjack hand calculator thing. Have you guys ever had a ploppy do this to you? Maybe they want to play the side bet. I don't know. Side bet or or double. How about your double your seven versus a six? I had that happen. Yeah, I I mean, I'm sure I have. I'm not remembering any 
I'm not remembering like a seven against a six that it happened on or anything. What what did you do it? I said, if you pay me for my original bet, then yes. Did they do it? Yeah. He gave me because at that time it was well, it was a hundred dollar bet. He gave me the hundred bucks. And I said, What do we do if we win? And he said, Well, we split it. I said, Okay, fair enough. That's a good move. <laughs> we lost, by the way. Lost. <laughs> but you got your original bet back. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Whoever asked this question, sorry if we didn't give a full answer, but that's the, that's the answer we got for you. All right. Moving on. Are whole deck amounts fine for deck estimation as it seems adding a maybe 5% edge for half deck amounts isn't worth it? 5% edge sounds pretty huge. Five, yeah, it sounds massive. I wish you could get 5%. Well, what they mean half. is an extra 5%. So what he's referencing is we put out a video. This was, gosh, maybe like five years ago. I put out a video that that broke down the math of what's the difference in EV from using a full deck divisor for your deck estimation, a half deck divisor, meaning dividing by six, five and a half, five, four and a half, four, so on, or quarter deck. And what I found is that going from full deck divisor to a half deck divisor added 5% to your EV. It didn't give you 5% edge, but edge. It added 5% okay. to your EV. Okay. <laughs> and then going to quarter deck only added another, I think, 1%. And so the advice I gave in that video is, hey, once I'm good at full deck, I would want to add 5% to my EV by learning the half deck increments, but I wouldn't bother with quarter deck for 1% extra EV. The brain power and the time it would take to say, okay, what's 17 divided by five and three quarters? You know, like it wouldn't be worth that extra 1% for me. But what do you guys think? Well, I just thought of a random question. What happens if you do? half deck estimations for the betting but you do full deck estimations for the deviations how does that change your edge well most of our money 80 percent of our money is from the betting so my guess is if you did that you'd maybe get an extra four percent rather than an extra five percent ev i mean that seems logical to me i haven't like simulated it but it seems logical so i think several of us teach this at boot camp too if you are good enough at half deck and or quarter deck, if you're playing a shoe game, six deck or eight deck, I wait until the last third to switch from whole deck to half deck because a true two on whole deck there is much better than a true two at the very beginning of the shoe. And when you're switching, you're getting more money out. I think it matters there more. Same thing for double deck. I'll go from half deck to quarter deck, probably a little earlier than the last third and single deck, you're doing quarters. Yeah, I think I might have even put this in that YouTube video ages ago, which is like, well, the first thing to do is if you're awesome at full deck amounts, then just for the second half of the shoe, do half decks. So you're you're dividing by six decks, five decks, four decks, three decks, and then two and a half, two decks, one and a half, one deck. That's kind of like the 80-20 principle of the of the idea. And when you're bored with that, add the rest of the half deck amounts. But man, I, it's just a hard sell to say, go to quarter deck for a shoe game. Yeah, no way. No. All that mental energy can be spent on your act, you know, anything else other than doing that. I just don't think I'm smart enough to do it either. Oh, <laughs> you're a smart guy. You could do it, but that doesn't sound fun. I'm a smart ass. <laughs> smart ass is different. 
<laughs> oh man, don't undersell yourself. Next question. When moving max bets up from green chipping to black chipping, what can you expect? Well, let's even start. I'd say let's start with red chipping to green chipping. What do you guys think you can expect going from those early red chipping days? Digging into your pocket a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, seriously. You can buy a lot of chips when you're red chipping with a hundred bucks. Well, I remember when I first started, it was like I would bring my bankroll. Like my bankroll was small enough where I would, it would fit in my pocket. You know, my entire bankroll was on me <laughs> for a session. So it's like I could literally feel, you know, in my pocket how much I'm up or down in my entire bankroll. And that, in some ways, it's kind of more stressful than playing bigger later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never was a red chipper. My perception is that red to green. I mean, I wouldn't think that the, there's much difference in that for the most part. Now, the caveat is it depends on where you are. You know, there are shops out there that will sweat heavy green action. <laughs> they exist. Or one black coming out and all of a sudden they're all talking to each other and counseling each other and all scared. So I think it depends on where you are. For the most part, my perception is red to green isn't that big of a deal. But I think you would know a bit more than... Oh, uh, yeah. You yeah. Sure 2K bankroll. And I, I don't remember what my top bet was, but it wasn't a lot. And I, I remember I had a 2K bankroll and 500 is how much I brought with me. And I didn't just bring it in my pocket. I brought in my wallet, my entire bankroll, or not my my trip bankroll. Fit, you know, 500 bucks, like didn't even make my wallet fat. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I think the downside to red chipping is crowded tables. Like it's amazing when you can start playing the $25 tables and it's a lot less crowded. The downside to moving up is more scrutiny. I don't think I had a back off for my first three months because I was betting up to like two spots of 75, something like that. And back off started coming more quickly. And once I was black chipping, it came all the more quickly. Of course, with way more EV, you know, I went from seven bucks an hour EV to when we were playing off a 200K bankroll, we're expecting a minimum of around 200 an hour EV or, or that was our benchmark was 200 and we wanted to get more than that. So with with the red chipping, what you can expect moving up is better conditions, but um, you know, more, more scrutiny. What do you guys think about just green chip to black? I mean, there's more than just the scrutiny part that I'm already thinking of. I mean, with the re green or red chipping, it's like you get way more people who are experts at the table telling you how to play. <laughs> oh, that's so true. When, when I'm betting like <laughs> two by 1,000 or something, no one tells me what to do or how to play or whatever. Somehow, they assume you're an expert because you're betting big. Somehow you're smarter because you're betting big, which we've been in a casino to know betting big does not make you... We've seen enough people betting $5,000 a hand that are terrible at blackjack. You'll make people at the table nervous. Like they'll be nervous about what they should do. Yeah. And they'll say, what and do if you it's want a positive count, I want them to take fewer cards. Stay. Negative count, I want yeah. them to hit a little bit more. Yeah. But it is weird. I, I remember like going to a riverboat somewhere and they yelled out green action for me. I was like, what? Green action? Like, so then when I was betting my ne my negatives, I would just, I would yell to the pit. I'd be like, red action. <laughs> There's another thing with, you know, black chipping, you're going to have CTRs. Like I never had a CTR, red chipping or green chipping. And that was really nice. There was never a time where 
my betting meant I might have to give them my ID. So prepare for that with black chipping. Another thing, if you're black chipping, they're going to want to color you up to yellow chips, purple, or I'm sorry, yellow, or even chocolates, like $1,000, $5,000 chips. Of course, I I don't want to do that because they usually want to track those. They want them linked to a player's card or whatever. So those are some of the headaches of black chipping. But also with black chipping, maybe you're getting to the stand 17 tables or, you know, even less crowded, better rules, stuff like that. The toe hustling gets harder too. Yeah. It is way more toe hustling. More money, more problems. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I tell people to enjoy the red chipping days because once you move up, you can never go back. It's never exciting to, you know, go back to red chipping, but it was so fun. You know, every day was a new thrill <laughs> counting cards. So enjoy it. All right. We got, a, we got time for a few more questions so moving on to some uh tax and law stuff just a couple questions here how do pro blackjack players handle taxes and and this is a short one but all you guys answer i pay my taxes i pay a cpa to handle my taxes for me yep same here just keep really good records i mean i think that's the that's the main key for everyone is keep as detailed records as you can there is Russ Fox, Clayton Tax Advisors in Vegas. I mean, we worked with CPAs before I knew about Russ Fox for for our entire blackjack team. We were always able to figure it out, but I always had a CPA do it because they'll know how to classify stuff, when you can write off expenses, when you can't, all of that stuff. So don't try to figure it out yourself. Just hire someone else. But uh, my advice, if if you're an American citizen, part of your civic duty what pays for libraries and roads and all that stuff is taxes. So it's not fun, but you know, that's our civic duty. Next question. How concerned are you and other P's about governments eliminating the use of cash and implementing central bank digital currencies? I won't be an AP at that particular time in my life. So I'm good with it. Uh, no, <laughs> I think it's going to be a very difficult thing to do in the United States. Eventually, it's going to happen. But I think anybody playing right now doesn't really have a worry. That's just my personal opinion. It's just not going to switch over that fast. That's a major leap. And in a country like this, where we really lack our freedoms, even though cash isn't used that much, I think the perception of it would, would not be great. Now, in other countries, I can see it happening a lot more rapidly. There was that one casino... I want to say it was in the Midwest, maybe somewhere that they plan to switch over to all digital, like uh, using your player's card, loading money on your player. Did did you hear about that? Yeah, there was one in Vegas that was showing off their portals at the tables. And that was like, I want to say it was three years ago. And I've heard nothing about it since. Penn, you can have your account on your phone and they have where you just put your phone up and it transfers the money back and forth to a machine. Um, they haven't made the leap for tables yet, but apparently that's coming. But they're still going to give you cash to play, is from what I understand. So that doesn't eliminate cash. Yeah, to me, this fits in the bucket of how much do you fear about something that hasn't happened that, that may happen? I try to not worry about things that haven't happened that may happen. People have said this, oh, what if casinos go to all CSMs in the entire world? Well, they... 
yeah, then I'll worry about when it happens. So I'll I'll adjust. I'll pivot. You know, what if facial recognition gets so good that we can never play it at any table? Well, it hasn't. It hasn't yet. So if you're afraid of what may happen in the future, look for something more secure than advantage play. Otherwise, yeah, I I just personally I'll worry about it when it happens. Yeah, and I wonder what if this person is it because they're hesitant to start learning or is it like what where is that hesitation coming from there's obviously like a big like they want to know all the reasons why it won't work before they jump in or or what it you know so maybe look inward and see what's going on yeah maybe i mean i, I don't want to make stuff up about the person that asked the question but i do know that our brains are wired to fixate on areas of fear it's like a survival mechanism um if you have two animals you know, we'll say two cats. One of them has no fears in the world. And the other one, a leaf is falling and they like go and hide. The one that's afraid of everything will live longer. Um, and so it's like kind of baked into us to obsess over fear, but that also can be counterproductive. It's why we love fearful news because it's like, oh no, what does this mean for me? How am I going to survive? And so I'm not a big fan of letting those fears rule my life, especially because I'm not worried of predators. Like, you know, maybe our ancestors would have been 500 years ago or or further back. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's like, this is, it's, we call it advantage play, but it is still a gamble, like it, in, in the sense that it's not a paycheck. So you got to be comfortable with a lot of unknowns to do this. Also, in the nature of vanished play, so many of the plays change and they come and go, and the, you know, and come back. If you're you're getting into this card counting, also like things come back, two to one blackjack promos come back, like different opportunities come back, and, and in other forms of advantage play, I mean, it's all it's all a cycle. But some things won't ever come back, like single deck dealt to the last card. Never say never, Colin. Never say never. Probably not going to be the main <laughs> game dealt in casinos ever again. Though back then there were only a handful of casinos in the country. But I think you need to be okay with an adapting landscape saying, sure, there were advantage plays that were around 20 years ago that you're not finding nowadays, but there are new things. And and really it's like the ones who adapt are the ones that continue to make money. And I've seen both of you guys do that over your careers. It's been fun. Fun to see and live vicariously through you guys as I sit at home in my sweatpants running a website. Oh, we're still in our sweatpants. <laughs> we're just running around the casino. It's just gonna, I'm currently in my sweatpants right now, too. But they call them joggers <laughs> now, so you don't you don't seem as lazy. All right. We got a few a few more um kind of going into more AP stuff. How often do you seek other advantages in gambling spaces? Uh how well they work out. How did you learn? And they say, you can be discreet. I know details are hush-hush, so I trust you guys will be discreet. <laughs> but what would you guys say? I mean, I'll go real quick. I mean, for me personally, the majority of my you know, casino winnings have been straight-up card counting, and it's reliable. Even with all the like, you know, losing streaks and break-even streaks, it's, it's, it's more reliable for me in the long term. As far as just, I know what I'm going to get. I know how much it's going to come out to eventually. Like, it's all very predictable in that way. With the other AP stuff, it's like, 
you know, it's so much, some of it could be so much higher hourly, but then you have no idea how long it's going to last. It usually doesn't last as I can't get a thousand hours in playing up, you know, 8% edge or something like that. I just haven't been that lucky, but so it's just kind of adapting to that sort of, and you also have to always be on the lookout. You have to always be looking for things and scouting and keeping your ear open. And it's just a constant sort of trying to get a gauge on where these plays are at. So that, that's another big part of it too, is just also it's just how much time you're spending in casinos. It's like, if you're spending a ton of time walking through casinos, you're going to find a lot more stuff and a lot more promotions, a lot more things like that along the way. I don't, want to attract anybody from pursuing either one being a primarily a card counter other advantage play stuff now i made a lot of money card counting and i've card counted more recently i would say that i have well i know i have i've made more money in other advantage play at this point in my career and there's pros and cons to both and this is something that we talk about in boot camp too in the second day it sounds great to get an eight 15, 20, 105% edge game. Sounds amazing. Finding that game, learning how to play that game, traveling to go play that game, and hoping that game is still there. There's just so many other things in the time that you spend, like Joe said, finding things. It's a lot, but it can be really profitable. Guess what else can be? Card counting. And you can just walk in and find a game anytime you want. So... There's pros and cons to, to both of those. In terms of the question, how do you learn? There's a lot of resources online that you can find out about other advantage plays and get started. And my recommendation to people is always um, networking, but networking in this world is it's not easy. So you need to get recognized for your work and your talents. So put the work in if you want to learn something. An example, pole carding. Well, then you better start learning how to whole card. It's going to happen if you're whole carding successfully. You're going to be seen by somebody else. And that's kind of, it, it just kind of cascades from there. You're not going to just approach somebody and be like, hey, I want to learn to do this. Teach me everything. It just doesn't work that way. And they're not going to tell you secrets. And it's at least they shouldn't. <laughs> so there's your discreet part. But, uh, Learn the skills first. That's what you have to do. That's what yeah, you have to do. There, there are some maybe lower-hanging AP plays you can just figure out from Google and Twitter. Then there are things that are in some books, put some pieces out there. Then a lot of the rest is going to be networking. We we do have a intro to advanced plays pocket or boot camp. And we it's only at a boot camp because we're not going to put it on the internet. Like I refused to <laughs> refuse to. And the networking thing, I mean, it's huge, but just be wise about it too. Cause there are people that network with someone that knows more than them. And then they get scammed. Like, I'm not saying one person that I know that this has happened to. I can think of multiple people that have scammed friends of mine that started off as like, yeah, let me help you make more money. Um, and it started off great and then went bad quick. So just be wise about don't jump in with someone until you establish trust and all that stuff. And did they have a good reputation with others, right? In any other field of business, you'd ask around before starting a business with someone or whatever. Like before you hire a plumber, you want to know, do they have a good reputation? So if you're going to do a cash business of advantage play, ask around. So there's there's as much as I think we're going to give, 
give here. One thing I like about card counting versus other AP plays where it's just, I don't get this as much with card counting, but with other stuff, it seems like not only am I, is my opponent the casino, it seems like my other opponent are all the other APs. And that is nice to not have to deal with in card counting where it's just, oh, I may, yeah, maybe someone will be at the table every once, every like, you know, a hundred times. But it seems like with other AP plays, there's also so much more competition and it's a little bit more cutthroat in that aspect. All right. Is it possible to count in Spanish 21? I heard this is possible by counting aces as minus two, but not 100% positive. I know the answer. Do you guys know the answer? Well, the answer is yes, it is possible to count Spanish 21, but it's no, not just adding no, that's the not. ace. With the that, that is not what you do. <laughs> no. I believe you You have to count, you answer count in Spanish. That's right. When you're playing Uno, the game. Dos, your... <laughs> uh, no, there's a book by Katarina Walker. So if you want to learn counting uh, Spanish 21, get, get her book. But it's not as simple. Like, it's got to have the right rules to be worth your time. Like an S17 um, Spanish 21 table or a double, double down table. But Katarina Walker's book is kind of the uh, primary resource for that. All right. Have you seen an AP get shunned by their family in the beginning only to have them crawl back when it goes well? Ooh. Yeah, me. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I think we yeah, well, I think we all can share some stories, but for six years, my mom has always asked me if I've lost all my money when I'm on the phone with her. And she finally stopped asking over a million plus and seven years down. So she stopped asking me that. <laughs> And then, but what about you guys? Families are difficult. Stigmas are difficult. When it comes to this topic, I certainly feel for the families because they're just concerned about their loved ones or their friend. And they're not wrong. Casinos are evil, vile places that want to do nothing but break you and take all your money. That's all true. So I think if you're in a situation like that, sometimes it just, it just takes some time, hopefully, but I'm sure there are family units that are just like, no, there's there's no reason for you to be in that environment at all. I mean, there's a really good AP friend of ours that's in that particular situation, unfortunately, and he just doesn't talk to his family anymore. So that would suck. Like my heart goes out to you for for a situation like that. The running back when it goes well, it's almost like uh, an illusion to, oh, now you have money. And now they're they're willing to come back, but uh, hopefully it's it's not because of that. It's because they realize that it actually is a a job. Just make no mistake about it; it's a freaking grind of a job. Yeah, man, that is a tough one. I mean, I think if this is a situation someone's in where they're they're going to get shunned by their family for doing it, maybe need to ask if it's worth it. If they're going to get shunned, you know, that sounds like there's more family dynamics than, you know, but at least ask, like ask yourself, is this worth, worth it? If I'm going to lose my, my family, maybe it's the tipping point of like, Hey, my family's toxic already. Or maybe it's like, you know what? Yeah. I don't, I don't need advantage play and my family's more important. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have left my wife if, if she was like, Colin, I don't want you doing this card counting thing. I'd be like, okay, uh, bummer. Okay. The crawling back when it goes well. Yeah, that sounds like there's other dynamics going on. I, I'll share share my story r- real quickly. Um, 
the first person I talked to was my father-in-law. And I waited till I'd been playing for a month or two to mention it when he asked what I'd been up to. And I told him and, and it didn't go great. He said he wanted me to talk to, I think it was like four or five older men that I respected. I was 22, 23 at the time. And then when I did, when I like met with these counselors and pastors and stuff and got all their advice and input on it, he was like kind of shocked that I did it and was like, wow, that's really impressive, you know? And so he kind of dropped it as far as being upset. Uh, Fast forward two or three years and he's the biggest investor, maybe three or four years later, biggest investor in our blackjack team. So that that made a big a big swing. I think his first concern was like, yeah, what are you doing? And this is really dangerous or foolish. And then he was like, okay, maybe it's not dangerous and foolish. Then it was like, oh, wow, this is actually a really good investment. Uh, my parents were missionaries at the time. And uh, my dad was terrified I was going to get like killed by the mafia. And my mom was terrified, terrified that I was going to be an addict because there was addiction, a lot of addiction in in my family, not with my parents, but like grandparents and stuff. So valid concerns, except I felt like, does my mom know me very well? <laughs> but still, I get it. As a parent, I get it. They took longer to be at peace with it than my father-in-law. But my dad, it was maybe five years before he wasn't worried about me and maybe seven years before he was proud of me. And then my mom, kind of a similar thing, maybe, you know, she got used to it after five years. And then she was like really proud of the book I wrote, 21st Century Card Count. When she read it, I think it helped her like really grasp it and was like, wow, can you teach me? And, you know, (laughs) so, but that was not a crawling back when it goes well. That was just coming to peace with their fears about it. But not that people asked my story. Well, all you have to do is uh, run a million dollar car canning team, have a, have a Netflix documentary made about you, write a book. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe eventually. Two books now. <laughs> do you believe me yet? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, but there are other people that call themselves APs that shouldn't be in casinos. So I, I don't know if someone's, I would just try to figure out what are the family dynamics? Like, can you trust their concerns, their their fears? And if it's like, oh no, they, they just really don't understand it. They're not willing to understand it. Then just give them time, I guess. That was the one thing I was going to add. Uh, you, you just touched on it. You know, there are people out there that I see them every day that call themselves APs. I think it's uh, also maybe a good opportunity to reflect on yourself in that particular kind of situation. Like, are you actually going at this, working your butt off, playing perfect and are you in fact an ap or are you just finding another excuse to gamble certainly not saying this individual is in that situation but i think anytime uh, that kind of situation in a family dynamic happens it's always good to ask questions like why am i doing this am i doing this right yeah there's a really good forum discussion called what does addiction look like because it was it was really brilliantly worded by Curly Fry, who's been on our podcast, where she described her day job before she quit and became a full-time AP. And then she described her job now. And like the full-time day job sounded more concerning in a lot of ways. But there are real concerns about like basically you can be a workaholic as an AP. You can be addicted to advantage play. So I think you always want to stay curious about those things and have people that do understand it that you can trust 
if they were to say like, dude, this isn't good for you anymore. That would be my personal advice, I guess. All right. On that dark note. Yeah, we need a happy okay, note. Okay. Happy note. <laughs> oh, well, first I'll say, if you're a BJ member, check out that thread. Uh, what does addiction look like? It's called on the forum. But happy note. Favorite Las Vegas restaurant. I, I just can't. I can't. just. Uh, we're talking about Las Vegas. I hate Las Vegas, but... One thing about Las Vegas is if you stay out of the casinos, there's nothing you can't do. And there's amazing food everywhere. I'll, I'll mention one, let you guys think about it. Favorite? I don't know, but it's it's definitely one of the ones I think of. It's on my short list. Fogo de Chao. And I know it's not just in Vegas. It, they have one even half an hour from where I live. But uh, I got introduced to it by Tommy Highland. And man, if you just go for the salad bar, you can eat well. They have this peppered maple bacon, something like that, that I could eat a pound of that. But then the the full thing is it's the Brazilian steakhouse thing. And man, and their rolls, those like rolls that melt in your mouth. I don't know what they are, but I do think they have cocaine in them because they're so addictive. So that's, that's one place that I always think of if it's like, where would be a really nice place to go? I don't know about really nice, but really tasty place to go. What do you guys think of anything? I really like Oyster Bar in Harrah's. I think it's a really, really, really great place. I'm a big fan of their food. And uh, also a small little joint outside of the strip called Taco Tarian. And that is a vegan taco place. And it is super good. I really like the Shang Artisan Noodle place on the west side. And I mean, of course, Island Sushi, we've said that a million times, but um, yeah. And then, I don't know, I think just like, because we do eat so unhealthy on the road all the time, I just like a solid greens and proteins place just as a standard. I know what I'm getting. I know it's pretty healthy. Like it's just sort of in there in multiple locations in Vegas. So it's kind of a nice break away from all the comfort food. Totally. Greens and protein. If you just need a meal and something not fried or or whatever. And you know, I love Island Sushi. It's always going to have a soft spot in my heart, but they lost me a little bit when they went away from the all you can order thing. I I shed a tear. I brought my brother there. Like, oh, and I'd been telling him about it for I don't know however many years and they didn't have the all you can order thing. It was still delicious, but all right, there you go guys. There's there's some top places to eat and we will be back, I don't know, some other time with more Q&A. And if you want to learn more about card counting, beating casinos, advantage play, all that stuff, check out blackjackapprenticeship.com where our membership will teach you what you need to know, give you the tools like betting software, forum access, casino database, and access to the pros and a community of card counters. Until next time, take it easy. <laughs>